Welcome to the Zen Stoic Path. In this episode, we're going to be discussing Zen Stoic morality, or said in a more modern way, how to not be a dick. <laughs> so in this episode, we're actually going to be going through a few things when it comes to morality that are rooted in Buddhism, as well as some stuff that's rooted in Stoicism. Now, one of the reasons why morality is important, especially when you are seeking your own liberation, you're seeking to create this unshakable inner peace, is that morality is a big place where our intentions come into play, especially with regards to how we treat others and also how we treat ourselves. So when it comes to Buddhism, there is discussion about something called the five precepts. Now, the five precepts, just to give you a quick background on that, are the vows that one makes in Buddhism that are part of their liberation. They're not necessarily rules or commandments or laws, but they are vows that one makes in order to become liberated, to go on their path. And these vows come before what is called the Eightfold Path. So the Eightfold Path is essentially a path to enlightenment through Buddhism, that begins with the Four Noble Truths. So I know there's a lot of uh, concepts here that I'm throwing at you, but the Four Noble Truths of Buddhism, as we've talked about before on the podcast, is that the first one is that in life there will be suffering. The second is that the root of all suffering is attachment or desire. The third Noble Truth is the cessation of suffering. And the fourth Noble Truth is the path to the cessation of suffering, which is the Eightfold Path. Now, Prior to engaging in the Eightfold Path, there are something called the Five Precepts, which is a big part of what we're going to be discussing today on this episode. Now, one of the reasons why we want to talk about morality is because society seems to be at each other's throats in the name of what is moral, right and wrong. Everybody has their sides these days, and it seems to be this very binary argument between what a person believes, whether politically or religiously. And a lot of what you start seeing is that in the pursuit of morality, a lot of people end up becoming inhumane with their intentions, their words, and their actions. And it's really interesting what people will justify in the name of morality, even when what they're doing to champion their perspective of morality is completely immoral to those who oppose it. So it's a very interesting argument that you see between folks these days. One such example is that which um, I've heard before, where people are very passionate about others getting vaccines with regards to COVID-19. And in that passion, in that pursuit, and by the way, this is not a uh, for or against observation here, but this is just an observation of what I mean when the excessive obsession of pursuing morality turns immoral. But for instance, where there are people who are very much for the vaccine, they're so convicted around the vaccine that they'll say something to other people like, well, those who don't get the vaccine deserve to die. They don't deserve to have medical attention, which is just silly because if the moral good of getting the vaccine is to save lives and then the person goes around and says, well, they deserve to die if they don't get it or I hope they die, wishing death upon another person isn't exactly moral. And you kind of kill the point of that morality. So the thing that we want to get down to is what is it exactly that allows us to have a sense of morality? Now, there was an article that I was reading upon preparation for this particular episode where they talked about how Buddhism is about liberating the mind. To accomplish this, Buddhism is about liberating the mind. To accomplish this, Buddha taught his path of morality, concentration, and wisdom. A life grounded in morality is a life free from restlessness and remorse as a result of regret. 
Just as in the entire Buddhist path, when it comes to the precepts, the Buddha emphasizes the underlying intention. This does not mean that you can invoke ignorance or inattention to justify misconduct. You cannot say that you knew well or did not know better or that it was moral. Much more, it means that your consciousness is the forerunner of your actions and that the consequences of your action, as the Dhammapada, verse 1 nicely states, Mind is the forerunner of all things. Mind is their leader. They are made by the mind. When someone speaks or acts with impure thoughts, suffering follows. Like the wheel follows the hoof of the ox. This was written by the editors at budo.org. So, one of the reasons why this is interesting is that almost as a precursor to the path of enlightenment, it's very important for us to have a sense of morality, of being good to other people, and making sure that our actions and our words are not conflicting with our intention of the good, of wanting the good for others. So part of this is also not playing ignorance or inattention, like it was saying, to just to justify misconduct. And that part there actually reminds me of one of Dave Chappelle's old skits where he talks about his white friend Chip and how... They were in the car together, and Chip was pretty drunk, and they pulled up next to somebody at a red light, and Chip looked over to Dave, and he said, Dave, I'm going to race him. And Dave's like, well, all right, if you got to race him, then you do what you got to do. And then he takes off when the light turns green, gets pulled over by an officer, and the officer comes up to the window, and Chip looks at him and says, I'm sorry, officer, I didn't know I couldn't do that. And the officer looks back at him, and he says, well, now you know, now get out of here. And Dave looks at Chip and he says, I didn't know I couldn't do that. And he says, that's good, right? Because I did know I couldn't do that. (laughs) So (laughs) that's just a stupid little example. But that is one of those situations where a person obviously knows that they're doing wrong, but they play ignorance. They say something like that. So the, the way that the morality works from a Buddhist standpoint is that it falls very much in line with the Zen Stoic intentions, where your intentions are the thing that you can't hide from yourself. So playing ignorance or inattention to justify misconduct or to justify that, oh, I didn't know any better, doesn't really play out right that doesn't that's not really how it works morality always comes back to our own intentions of why we're doing something the zen stoic intentions are a great precursor for understanding your own morality and being able to reflect on that and have a self-governing system the one thing that we can't hide from ourselves no matter how much good we do in the world or right things we say or how much we achieve are our intentions for doing so so our morality comes down to our own intentions The way that we can look at this is if we were to have a right and wrong here, what is right would be pointing back towards your humanity. What is wrong is pointing away from your humanity. And that also includes the pointing towards the humanity of others or pointing away from the humanity of others. Now, one of the reasons why that is key when it comes to examining yourself in these situations is that if you are seemingly doing something good, You're doing what is supposed to be the right thing on the surface, but you're engaged in intentions of resistance of what is. You're trying to maybe control others or control situations. You're being expedient. You're trying to rush through things or rush the results or do the thing that's going to quickly soothe your discomfort or the discomfort of others. Or you're you're being very performative and not being yourself and just placating to the people around you. These intentions under the guise of morality will ultimately lead to more suffering, more restlessness within our own minds. So it's really important for us to examine our own intentions. Now, both Stoicism and Buddhism have 
interesting ways of looking at morality. Stoicism has the very basic foundation of the four virtues, which are really important when it comes to morality, right? There's wisdom, justice, temperance, and courage. The one that really points to morality from the four virtues is justice, treating others justly and fairly. If you're unable to bear someone else, at least be kind to them or be patient to them, to always seek kindness when it comes to your fellow human. When it comes to Buddhism, there are the five precepts, which as we talked about before, these are not commandments or a moral law laid down by some kind of a cosmic lawgiver or God. These are vows. They're not intended to necessarily make you a good person or make you appear as a good person to other people, but these are ways that you're able to enter into your own liberation without that restless mind. Because as the editors were saying in the article from Budo.org that we were mentioning before, a life grounded in morality is a life free from restlessness and remorse as a result of regret. Now, why that's important for one's own liberation? Because it's very difficult to attain any kind of concentration or wisdom if you still have regret flowing around in your mind. If you still have lies, gossip, or poison in your mind that you're just trying to keep up with and or drama that you're trying to follow, that's going to make it very difficult for any kind of inner peace to occur. So, in Buddhism... There are the five precepts. Now, the way that these are typically taught or the, the typical translations are to abstain from killing, to abstain from stealing, abstain from sexual misconduct, abstain from wrong speech, and abstain from the use of intoxicating substances that cause inattention. So these are some of the traditional translations. I really like Alan Watts's translations of the five precepts. So we're going to focus on those for the sake of this episode. So the first precept of the five precepts in Buddhism is not to destroy life. So not to destroy life, what we want to remember is that this precept is very much aligned with the intention of embrace. The intention of embrace is all about one's outlook on life. So when I say to intend embrace, what that means is to love what is. It also falls very much in line with amor fati, which is a concept that's used a lot in Stoicism and was talked a lot about by Frederick Nietzsche. But to embrace falls in line with this idea of not destroying life. Embrace falls much into this. The reason being is because when you are embracing, when you are loving what is, it causes you to contemplate on the interconnectedness of human beings and our own humanity. Now, Marcus Aurelius would talk a lot about this idea of how human beings are made for each other, that we are a social animal that needs one another. And... He said in his meditations, men have come into being for one another, so either educate them or put up with them, meaning that if there's somebody who's, you know, causing some friction or causing some trouble, it doesn't mean that we just out them. We embrace that they are also a human. We embrace the humans around us. We embrace the social interconnectedness that we all depend on as human beings. So destroying life would be going against that. It would be going against our own nature because to kill each other goes against the greater good. Now, some people have interpreted this precept of not destroying life as not killing animals either. But what many people don't realize is that the Buddha himself was not a vegetarian and neither were the monks at that time. And as it was stated in that article that we had been referencing before from Budo.org, the most subtle form is in keeping to the precept with your mind. That is, not having thoughts that go in the direction of killing creatures. And even more subtle, not harboring malicious thoughts so not only acting on it, but slowly but surely diminishing the first mental inclination itself. This brings us to the active side of this precept. 
For if the foregoing is the passive side, not doing something, then the active side must be developed to protect the mind. To abstain from killing is on a more subtle level to do no harm out of malice. The positive force that counteracts this is loving kindness, or metta. In order to adhere to not killing, it helps to develop metta, loving kindness. If you do this, other beings around you do not have to worry anymore. You will become a safe haven, a beacon of peace for all beings, completely nonviolent. This precept of not destroying life is not so much about literally whether or not we're hunting animals for food, so to speak, but it is more so saying not to necessarily kill each other not to kill out of malice. So if we are going to hunt, it's not hunting because we're angry and we're trying to kill something. It's because we're trying to sustain life. Because again, Buddha was not himself a vegetarian, so this was not about whether or not there was some kind of killing. It had to do much more with the intention. Was the intention out of malice, or was it out of the need to sustain life? And that's the thing that we want to come back to, because... The idea here is to reduce the malice within the mind, to diminish that inclination, and to instead counteract it with the more proactive part or the positive force, which is the loving kindness. So this precept is not only about just abstaining from killing, but it's also to engage actively in being loving and kind. This is part of what we were made for as human beings, is to embrace one another, embrace the interconnectedness of the fact that we are social animals. And the Stoics were big on kindness, on responding with kindness to others, even when others were not kind to you. So that is the first precept. The next precept, number two, is to not take what is not given. In other words, not to steal. So what this precept really points to is abstaining from greed not taking from one another. Because once again, this is another form of resistance to the nature of the social animal. If we're taking from one another, we're really and truly taking from ourselves because we were made to cooperate. So this is going against our nature. Now, the delusions that might come up in this particular precept are, once again, resistance, but also forms of control or expediency, trying to control someone else's resources by taking them or being expedient by... Let's say you want something that someone has, but instead of working hard to get it or asking them for it or building a relationship with them, you just go and take it. You take the expedient route because you're not able to handle the discomfort of not having the thing that you want. So this is the second precept, not to take what is not given. If something is given to us, that's totally different. But that takes the building of relationships. Sometimes that takes hard work. Sometimes that takes effort and time investment. And we want to abstain from these delusions because if we resist our own humanity and take from each other, if we try to control each other, we try to control each other's resources by stealing them, or we try to be expedient by rushing over and you know taking something away rather than kind of understanding what it takes to bring that into our own life, then we're going to have that restless mind. We're going to fill ourselves with that that unpleasant emotion and regret, that agitation. And this is one of the reasons why the precepts are very useful for achieving a sense of inner peace to start to build some ability to concentrate and start to build wisdom within ourselves. Number three. So number three is sometimes translated as not to commit adultery or not to engage in sexual misconduct. But the translation that Alan Watts uses is one that I actually really like because the way that he says it is to abstain from exploiting the passions. In other words, 
when you're feeling blue and bored, it's not a good idea to have a drink or to use sexuality to feel better. This creates dependency by using the passions and masking of unpleasant feelings. The delusion of expediency was inspired from this particular precept. And one of the reasons is because what happens when one is exploiting the passions is we're building a bridge from the uncomfortable emotion to the comfortable emotions. So the way that we can think of the counterintentions of discipline versus expediency is these two intentions, one points back to your humanity, discipline, the other points away from it, expediency. These two counterintentions are related to your relationship to your own emotions. So when we exploit the passions, when we exploit pleasurable things, what we are doing is we are creating a bridge of expediency from an uncomfortable emotion to a comfortable emotion. And thus we are exploiting the passions. We are exploiting what is pleasurable in life and using it to avoid dealing with the current emotions that we're feeling. Now this activates the resistance of emotions and remember what you resist will persist so our emotions do not just go away because we made ourselves feel better with a drink or with sexuality or with a cigarette or with watching netflix our emotions are going to continue because remember the point of our emotions are to signal to us something they're trying to communicate something to us they're trying to give us a message maybe it's a lesson maybe it's a principle but if we do not receive the message, the emotion will stay with us until it has communicated what it needs to communicate with us. Then it'll go away. So if we exploit the passions, we're going to put ourselves into a place where we're harboring years and even decades of unprocessed emotion that's going to convolute our perception of ourselves, our perceptions of others. And in that state, our morality is going to be non-existent because it's almost as though we are in a survival mode where we're just trying to look out for ourselves. So this can breed narcissistic tendencies. This can breed tendencies of being completely self-centered and feeling the world revolves around us and that we need to use everything and everyone as a way of mitigating our uncomfortable feelings or our unpleasant feelings. So that is the third precept, to abstain from exploiting the passions. Number four, is to abstain from false speech or using speech for abuse, manipulation, or deception. So if we're going to go back into Zen Stoic delusions, these would be engaging in the delusions of control and performance, right? Using manipulative speech or to lie or deceive and then using performance to maybe appear a certain way by using false speech or maybe using performance by investing more in the perception of others than the perception you have of yourself and using false speech or hyperbolic speech to make yourself look better in the eyes of other people. So it, it's really important to keep in mind that false speech has a really negative effect on the way that we view ourselves and the way that we actually view the world. Now, it may not seem like such a big deal, but lying is actually a very, very big deal when it comes to our own morality. Jordan Peterson talked about this idea of lying in his book, 12 Rules for Life, where rule number eight is tell the truth or at least don't lie. And he says, lies 
make you weak and you can feel it. You cannot get away with warping the experience of being. And that's exactly what happens when we try to lie, when we try to engage in false speech in order to either be expedient and get ahead by telling a little white lie, or we try to perform and make ourselves seem better in the eyes of others and conceal information, or we try to control the thoughts of others by manipulating them with our words. The point is, using our words in this way only ends up disturbing our inner peace and causing more chaos within our own being. Another place where this was discussed in depth was in the book The Four Agreements, where the first agreement is to be impeccable with your word. And the word impeccable comes from the Latin word peccatos, which is to sin. Impeccable means without sin. So to be impeccable with your word is to engage in truth-telling, to engage in sincere communication. So using the Zen Stoic intention of sincerity, let's say, is communicating more truthfully, maybe being more understanding in your communication rather than trying to control others. That is also a way of engaging in an impeccable word. You're not trying to cut others down. You're not trying to lie to others or deceive them, but you're using your word to build yourself up. When your word has sin within it, what it's doing is you're using your word against yourself and others. So abstaining from false speech also means abstaining from beating yourself up or being a tyrant in your own mind or beating other people up with your words or being a tyrant in their minds. The idea here is is to speak with intentionality, speak with sincerity, speak with a sense of understanding who you're talking to and a sense of discipline of how you're crafting your words. Some people might think to themselves that they're engaging in genuine or real speech when they're being very blunt with others, when they're just kind of like throwing out whatever it is that they think. Bluntness in our communication is not necessarily speaking with truth, although maybe factually what we're saying holds true because it's what we feel or it's what we've observed. The point is being blunt at times is also a lazy way of communicating. It's not necessarily championing a truthful way of communicating because when we're being blunt, what we're doing is we're just throwing out everything that we feel without any kind of consideration for the other person. The way that I always like to describe this when I'm coaching with my clients is that being blunt is like going and hunting for rabbit and using a bazooka to do so. Sure, you're going to kill the rabbit. You'll probably blow it to smithereens, but you're also going to destroy parts of the forest around the rabbit. Maybe you'll even destroy the homes of other animals that you didn't intend on killing. In which case, yes, you're hitting your target, but you're also causing a bunch of collateral damage that's completely unnecessary. So instead of being blunt in communication, the idea is to be more direct. You can be sincere and direct without cutting someone down, without dunking on somebody. Remember, it is the intentionality that triggers your morality. It's not about that, yes, I just spoke my mind and I told him what I said and I was super blunt about it. It's like, no, it's not how it works. Part of it is just having an intentionality to make sure that what you communicate sincerely is also being considerate and respectful of the person that you are saying it to. So remember, abstaining from false speech also includes that idea that we talked about in the beginning of the episode of not playing into ignorance or mindlessness in our communication delivering, speaking truthfully, speaking sincerely, also comes with being mindful around the communication and how it's going to land with other people. Now, the fifth and final precept is to abstain from intoxication 
or passing through life in a deep haze. So passing through life in a dim haze does not do much for your inner peace or awakening. So this is not saying that one shouldn't drink or use substances of any kind. What this is saying is not to consistently pass through life in a haze. If we're intoxicated on a regular basis and we're not here, we're not very awake, it's going to be difficult for us to find a sense of inner peace because at the end of the day, using any kind of intoxicants is most of the time a form of expediency. Now, it really depends on how we do it. If we're getting drunk and we're just getting hammered at you know, so much to the point that we are slurring our speech and we're stumbling around, then we're passing through life in a haze. But let's say we're consuming alcohol with a bunch of our friends and, or family and we're just having a good time and we're basking in each other's company and we're really just enjoying ourselves and laughing and we're not tripping over ourselves or stumbling through our words, but we're just having a good time and we're very present in the moment. This is not a violation of this precept. A violation of this precept would be going so far overboard into an intoxication that we suddenly become unpresent. We set, we're suddenly passing through that moment in a haze and blurring it from our consciousness. That would be a violation of it. And again, that is very, very close to and draws a lot of parallels with the third precept of ex abstaining from exploiting the passions. This is also rooted in expediency, right? If we are passing through life in a haze, what we're probably doing is we're probably trying to avoid uncomfortable emotions, things that we haven't processed or uncomfortable situations. We're probably not addressing the stress that we might be carrying around. So this is one that is really important because in order for us to have that sense of inner peace, it's really important that we are present to life. And it's very difficult to be present when you're completely intoxicated or passing through life in a dim haze. So those are the five precepts. Not destroy life, not take what is not given, not exploit the passions, abstain from false speech, and abstain from intoxication. These are the five precepts. This is a guide and a set of vows that we can make in order to be the best version of ourselves to ourselves and others. The idea here is that by engaging these, we can be much more present in mind. We won't be carrying around regret. We won't be carrying around as many unprocessed emotions that will ultimately cloud our judgment and distort our reality. It allows us to more easily relax into the nature of our being like Marcus Aurelius would talk about, how rational beings are inherently social to live wisely and harmoniously with one another. And the good rational creature is an attitude of fellowship for others. Part of what this means is that we don't just engage in these precepts and intentions to be good for ourselves, but we do this to engage in this attitude of fellowship for others, of responding with kindness, responding with the intention to cooperate and to embrace one another as fellow human beings. And this is a big part of how we create that inner peace within ourselves. So keep these precepts in mind. For as Shunryu Suzuki said, when your mind becomes demanding, when you long for something, you will end up violating your own precepts. Not to tell lies, not to steal, not to kill, and not to be immoral and so forth. If you keep your original mind, the precepts keep themselves. We should be very grateful to the rigid, formal way of practicing Zen and Zen precepts. You may think these precepts are useless if we cannot observe them perfectly, but they are the traces of human effort based on the great mercy of the Buddha. One thing that's really important to keep in mind 
is to remember not to beat yourself up if you're not perfect with these precepts or with the Zen Stoic intentions. That your morality is always a work in progress. Sometimes we don't know when we're doing wrong. It's very much like Marcus Aurelius said when he was thinking about and reflecting upon other people, where he said, if what they're doing is right, you have no reason to complain. If it is not, then it must have been involuntary or unintentional. Because just as no one ever deliberately denies the truth, according to Socrates, so nobody ever intentionally treats another person badly. That's why these negative people are themselves insulted if anyone accuses them of injustice, ingratitude, meanness, or any other sort of offense against their neighbors. They just don't realize they're doing wrong. One thing that we can do with this particular passage from Marcus Aurelius is to remember this, to remember what Marcus Aurelius said, to remember what Shunryu Suzuki said, and to realize that when practicing these precepts, when practicing the Zen Stoic intentions, keep in mind that it's not always going to be perfect to give yourself a break, to not expect yourself to be perfect, but it is in the effort of pursuing these precepts and observing these precepts and being intentional and being self-reflective that is where we're going to find our inner peace. It's not to say that these things are going to make us good people or that they're going to cause us to have and achieve all the things that we want in life, but what it is saying is that it will at least give us a way of using our intentions to point at and aim at aligning with our own morality towards ourselves and with others. And the way that we do that is because when we point back to our humanity, when we point back to our nature, we are able to effortlessly become present in the moment, to effortlessly begin to experience inner peace in everyday things. Remember, Zen is not just found in meditation, it's found in everyday life, it's found in conversations with other people, it's found in our outlook of how we see the world, it is found in the way that we deal with our own emotions, it's, it's found in anything and everything. But it all comes down to intentionality, to being kind and loving to yourself. Imagine what the world would look like if we put our best effort forth to observe and practice these precepts to observe and practice the Zen Stoic intentions. What would it be like if we adopted Marcus Aurelius's attitude of fellowship towards the people around us? The best way for us to get things done, get the most out of our experiences, is to work together. The foundation of the quality of our efforts towards meaningful ends begin with our own morality and how we treat ourselves and others.